So Luke chapter 20, as you guys know, Jesus on his last leg of his ministry, his life, really, um, obviously he came to die, like that was his main purpose. Um, but in the midst of that, we see him living a perfect life. Uh, we see him performing miracles. We see him preaching with all authority um, and bringing about the gospel. Like he is the gospel, right? And so in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we see kind of the premise of this entire book, the, the, the theme of it. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost, right? So that's, that is part of his purpose of coming. He calls us in Scripture the lost, right? The broken, the dead. And so he came to make us who were dead alive. He came to make us who were lost found again. And what caused us to be lost? Our sin, right? Our sin. So in the last few teachings that we've gone through in chapter 20, we've seen Jesus being challenged. You guys remember this? Um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Um, a lot of the religious leaders are coming to Jesus and they're challenging him to one of, one of two things, to make a fool out of him, to make a mockery of him so that the people who do believe in him, the people who are following him and people who are interested in him, people who are praising him, people who are esteeming him, um, they're trying to make them realize that Jesus is a fraud, right? So they come to him with these types of questions where if Jesus answers this way, well, then everyone's going to see him as a fraud. But if he answers this way, well, then he's going to find himself in trouble with authorities, especially the, the Roman authorities. And so what we find out, every time that Jesus is challenged, he doesn't fall into their, into their games and their tricks. He really never answers the question, but oftentimes, more often than not, he rebuttals with a question of his own. And then they're found in a predicament where they can't answer it because they don't want to offend one side or the other. And ultimately what we see happening is the more that man speaks, <laughs> we see the foolishness come out. Right? The more that, that man puts his own authority and his own opinion above God's, we see how foolish it becomes. You know, um, And we'll get into that in a little bit. So let's go ahead and read the entire section and then we'll, we'll break it down. So verse 27 says, Then some of the Sadducees, who denied that there is a resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also, they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised, when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. I don't know why it took them this long to figure that out. They should have seen all the other circumstances that had happened. And I would have stopped questioning Jesus a long time ago. But here, the, the, the question that comes about, it's not so much about marriage, even though it seems like that. What they're really challenging Jesus in is what? The resurrection. The resurrection from the dead. And, and Luke kind of alludes to that in verse 27 when he says, 
that it's the Sadducees who come and, they, and he says, they who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, why is that important? I may not answer this fully right now, but as we study through, we'll, we'll get to that answer. But we're going to understand that the resurrection is vital to Christianity. The resurrection is vital to eternity. The resurrection is vital as we study through this, and Jesus is going to give them the answer to why the resurrection is important, and that it does exist, and that it is real, and that he is the God of the living and not of the dead. And so what we see with the Sadducees is that they denied the resurrection, right? That was their, their one thing, their one claim to fame, but not just the resurrection, but they denied a few other things as well, and we'll see this in a minute. So here's these religious leaders, right? They're, they're almost, as we would call them, religious liberals, and they're opposite to the Pharisees, right? These included the high priests, the priests. They didn't believe in, one, the resurrection, like we've talked about. They didn't believe in the angels, and they didn't believe in the miraculous, right? It was very, it was very dead, right? It was all basically just knowledge. There was, no, there was no power of God. That's what they denied. There was no power of God. And so they didn't believe in the miraculous angels or in the resurrection, and that's why some people say, that's why they were sad, you see. That's bad. All right. So what we find out from the Sadducees is that they believed only in the first five books of the Bible. You guys know what the first five books are? You guys know the first two. That's good. <laughs> Do the right thing? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's considered the Torah. Okay? That's what they considered the inspired word of God and nothing else. Not even the rest of the Old Testament. So they just, they, they, they believe just the first five books. And what's interesting is that when Jesus rebuttals, he actually rebuttals using those same five books. Like he could have used anything, right? But he uses this, the one thing that they believe in and he uses that. That's really cool. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they often did not like each other, right? But in reality, what we're going to see is that they're going to work together to get Jesus killed. But they, they did not like each other. We see this in Acts 23, in verses 6 through 9. I'll read this to you really quick. When Paul was arrested and he was put on trial before the Sanhedrin. In verse 6, it says, When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council and he says, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So they do not, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection, and this is what is not just being called into question as they approach Jesus with this question, but they outright deny it. And again, the resurrection is vital to Christianity. And Paul says, this is what I'm being put on trial for. And we see him writing this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. And I, I literally could not expound more on this. I mean, I could. But Paul puts it so simply of why the, why the resurrection of Christ is important. He says this, this is the answer here. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So what I do every morning means nothing and what we all believe means nothing. If Christ is not risen. Jesus' life is it's somewhat threefold of, of the importance of it. Like It's so vital and it's so important that he was born a man. It's so vital and it's so important that he lived a perfect life as he was a man. Actually, there's four things. And then it was so vital and it was so important that he died, right? Well, sometimes we, we forget that, like it just, it goes over our head, like, yes, it's important that he died. And then it's so vital and it's so important that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, right? If not, if he doesn't, if he did not, then what we believe, our faith is empty. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. He says, if the, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. The resurrection witnesses the immense power of God himself. To believe in the resurrection is to believe in God. And if Jesus does not have the power to raise back from from the dead, if he does not have the power to raise to life, then he does not have the power to create life. I mean, think about that. If we believe Genesis 1-1, well, then we believe the resurrection. If he can create life, then he can also come back to life. And Jesus even made this statement. He made this claim in John chapter 11, verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? I am the resurrection and the life. He claims to be the source of both, right? There is no resurrection apart from Christ, no eternal life. And Jesus does more than give life because he is actual life. That is why the consequence, consequence of sin is death because there is a separation from the source of life, right? It wasn't just Jesus coming up, I've said this all the time, it wasn't just Jesus coming up with a consequence all of a sudden because Adam and Eve sinned. He's like, I need to figure out some type of consequence. It's kind of like what we do as parents. It's like, oh, my kid just did something. Do I spank him? Do I put him in the corner? What do I do? Like, I don't, he doesn't just come up with it. No, it was the natural recourse and response to removing and parting away from the source of life. So because of sin, there is now death. Hence why Jesus then comes and he dies on our behalf. Right? He became a man. He had to be the kinsman redeemer, which we'll look at in a second. He became our kinsman redeemer, dies on our behalf. But listen, who can die? Anyone, right? We can all die. But who can rise from the dead? Christ, right? God. Only God can do that. So he is life. And that's why death has no power over him. So if Jesus rises from the dead... That means he's defeated death, which means he's defeated sin. Which means that if I put my faith in him, like the Bible tells me, then sin no longer has power over me, like the Bible tells me. Because the resurrection is real and the resurrection has happened. The second thing we see is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why it's also important is because it validates who he claims to be. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. It authenticated who he was. He is deity. A third reason why it's important, it proves his sinless character and his divine 
nature. It's so important. Again, it proves who Jesus was. It demonstrates his power. It demonstrates that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. It shows that he has the power to raise from the dead. It guarantees that when we die, we will be raised from the dead. It guarantees that those who have gone before us, that if they have put their faith in Christ, we will see again. So in verse 28, they come to him and they ask him this question. They say, teacher, right? It's kind of like a little dig there because they don't really think he's a teacher. They say, Moses wrote to us, again, quoting in one of the books of the first five, that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So this was a law that was set in place by God with Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 25. How many of you guys are coming out on Wednesday nights? All right, cool. You guys know this one, right? This is like the theme of Ruth, right? This is what we see with the the kinsman redeemer. We've quoted Deuteronomy 25 pretty much every time we've studied through Ruth. So God put in place this law, one, to help the widow, right? For her benefit, for, for, for the kids, but it was ultimately to continue on with the family name because it was vital and it was important because God wanted um, the land because it was a twofold thing. Uh, they would buy back the land and they would marry the woman and continue on with the offspring. And with doing that, it, it kept Israel in the promised land that God had given them and it continued on the name. So in Deuteronomy 25, I want to read this really quick to you in verses 5 through 10. This is what they're quoting. Okay, this scenario, this hypothetical scenario question that they're coming up with. So this is the law. It says in verse 5, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed, uh, succeed to the name of his brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and he says, I don't want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. I don't know why they do it like that, but it was just one of the interesting things where they take the sandals like, I don't know. But the spitting in the face, what do you think that means? It's a disgrace. And we just studied this on Wednesday. When Boaz, who falls in love with Ruth, and Ruth falls in love with Boaz, right? She comes in the middle of the night and uncovers his feet. Like, it's so romantic. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> And she, she basically proposes to him and, and puts herself out there and says, look, I'm available. I love you. And Boaz reciprocates that, but he says, look, the word of God is more important. The law that God has set in place is more important than our love. And so I'm going to do this the right way. And I'm going to tell you right here and right now that, yes, I am part of your, your, I am a kinsman, but I am not the closest kinsman. It's not my right or my duty first. There's actually someone who's closer than me. You guys remember this? And so he says, I'll go before the elders at the gate. 
And if he wants to marry you, if he wants to be the kinsman redeemer, if he wants to do his duty, his responsibility, that is, he's called to do, that he's supposed to do, then great. That's what he says. And so he leaves it in God's hands. And so what we see happening is they go before the elders, they go to the front gate, and the guy comes up. The guy doesn't have a name, and I'll tell you why in a second. He comes up, and uh, Boaz says, look, Naomi's here, Ruth is here, um, they have land. Do you want to buy back the land? Because remember, it was a twofold thing with the kinsman redeemer. It was purchasing the land and, and the woman. Okay? They came together. You couldn't get one without the other. So he, Boaz tells him about the land, and the guy's like, yes, I want the land. Like, who won it, right? Like, it's eventually going to go in my name because Naomi's old. She's going to die pretty soon, okay? Like, I, I will inherit the land. I'm going to be rich, yada, yada, yada. But then Boaz is like, wait, there's one more thing. You've got to take Ruth. She is the daughter-in-law of Naomi, and you've got to continue on the name of her husband and, and the, the father, um, Elimelech, right? It's Elimelech. What does he say? He says no, <laughs> right? He does the very thing that this, the law says in here. And so what we see happening is Ruth doesn't actually spit in his face. I think she had a little more grace towards him. Um, but what we see in Scripture, in Ruth chapter 4, this man has no name. Do you guys remember his name? No. Yeah, he call, well, yeah, in, in New King James, he, he calls him friend. In the King James, he calls him so-and-so, such-and-such, John Doe. Right? And in, in the Hebrew, it's actually really funny. I forget how to pronounce it. I think it was called like Poloni Alimony or something. Poloni. It was some weird way of saying it. Basically, he did not have the right to have his name in Scripture for eternity because he denied his responsibility of continuing on the name of Elimelech. Isn't that crazy? But isn't that awesome how God works? So, so we see this happening and coming to play in actuality in the book of Ruth, right? In the book of Ruth. And so what they do is they come up with this hypothetical, some crazy anomaly. Isn't that what everyone does when it comes to combating some type of, of truth is they come up with this absurd anomaly that it's one in a million, like it's not the norm, right? Like what are the chances of this actually happening where um, a woman marries a man, that man dies, and then there's six other brothers and they all go to marry her and then they all die. Is that not a crazy anomaly? What stupid parent after the third or fourth brother is continuing to give their sons to her? Right? Like, what are you doing? That's way too many. I mean, like, is her cooking that bad? Then I'd start the question, like, is she killing them? I mean, wouldn't you question that after, like, at least three, four, five? I mean, definitely at six. And if I'm the seventh brother, I'm like, no, like, this is not... So it, doesn't it sound like a, a dumb, stupid hypothetical? Jesus goes with it and he uses it, but he makes them look foolish in the midst of it. I love it because truth will always do that. And it's not that we're out there to make people look foolish, but we do that ourselves the more that we talk and the more that we fight against the truth and we try to make the truth our, what we want it to be. I don't I know if I was going to bring this up, but I'll bring it up. Have you guys seen the, the movie, the documentary that just came out about, I think this year, called What is a Woman? Anybody know about it? By Matt Walsh. Okay, I'm not promoting him. I'm not promoting the, the movie but, or the documentary. So how many of you have seen it? Okay, so a, as you guys watched it, and those, those of you who don't know, it, the guy just goes around and he asks people, if you can just define what a woman is. Because we know in this age that we live in, 
that you can pretty much be anything you want to be, right? And so as he's going around asking this question, a simple question, it, it brings about hatred and uh, really dumb answers. And so the more that they talk because they're not speaking truth, you, get, you begin to see the foolishness that comes out of the answer. So eventually where they give an answer and the answer is, uh, it's, it's, it's someone who wants to be a woman. And then you're like, well, that's not a definition, right? You, you need to define what a woman is. Well, if, if you identify as a woman, you're a woman. That's still not defining what a woman is. And so you just see as, it, as you go on through the, the documentary, um, the foolishness. And it's not to put anyone on blast in regards to um, the uh, gender, you know, their misidentity or whatever you want to call it. Um, this happens a lot with any of us. The more that we speak, the more foolish we, we are. Anytime that we put our own, our own reality or our own truth above God's, it, it will look foolish, right? And so when we challenge and we question the authority and the word of God, we will eventually look and sound foolish because the truth is the truth and there is only one truth. So in verse 29, it says, Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife again, died without children. And this means then the second brother is going to have to marry the woman. The second took her as wife, and, she, and he died childless. The third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, and this is their real question, therefore in the resurrection, okay, what does that mean? Think of heaven. They're basically saying, in heaven, whose wife does she become? Right? I mean, that question could really be, you know, for anyone that's gone through divorce and remarried, or a widow and has remarried, like, you know, some people have been married three, four times. Well, who, whose wife or whose husband, right? Will, will they be in heaven? He, and they say, for all seven had her as a wife. And I think the assumption is that if the woman had been married to all seven, then again, in the resurrection, she must be married to all seven men. And I think it's the wrong question because, again, I would question why and how did all seven of these guys die but they're, they're bringing up this hypothetical question to get to an answer. And, and in Matthew chapter 22, we see the same thing happening, but Matthew records um, one extra thing that we don't get here in Luke after he, or before he gives his answer. Jesus says this. He says, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scripture nor the power of God. I love that. He says, you are, You're foolish. You don't know anything because there's two things that you don't believe in, two things that you don't trust, two things that you don't know, which is the scriptures or the power of God. And there has to be a balance of both. Do we understand this? There has to be a balance of both when it comes to our life and what we believe. There has to be a balance of both in our church, in the church. There's many churches who believe one or the other, right? They don't teach the word of God but they believe in the Holy Spirit and the power and the works of the Holy Spirit. Or there's some that don't teach the Word of... Wait, did I just say the opposite? There's some that do teach the Word of God, but they don't believe in the works and the power of the Holy Spirit. There has to be both. There has to be an emphasis on the power of the Scripture and the power of the Spirit, because if you have the Scripture without Spirit, you'll dry up. If you have the Spirit without Scripture, it says you'll blow up. But if you have Scripture and Spirit, you'll grow up. And what we see with the Sadducees is that they had neither one. 
It's not like they were off any better if they just had one, but they had neither. We have to have both. So again, here they're arguing against the resurrection by trying to show problems and inconsistencies with an opposing view. And they felt that because Moses commanded this, that there cannot be a resurrection because the woman would find herself married to multiple men. Like that doesn't make sense. It wouldn't work. So because it wouldn't work, because she would have seven husbands, there's no way there's a resurrection. This is what they're saying. This is what they're implying. Yet again, when you try to make the truth look foolish, you yourself end up looking foolish. When man speaks from his own knowledge, he will immediately speak as a fool. And when we place ourselves over the word of God, we will quickly become foolish. And one of their biggest mistakes, or one of their mistakes, was the assumption that heaven will be exactly like this world. I think we make that assumption too. That when we get to heaven, when we live in eternity, that it's going to be the same as this. But just without the bad stuff. But I think what we, what we fail to realize is that we, we're limited in our knowledge and understanding. That the feelings and the, the thoughts that we have, I think are limited as well. And I think that we have no idea how much better we could ever perceive it to be. Whatever you, however good you think it's going to be, I think it's going to be even better. And we oftentimes have misconceptions because of what we want it to be like, right? Like we want it to be this way. You know, like when the Bible tells us that, that somehow, some way, we are going to be worshiping God nonstop. Like to you and I, let's just be real. Doesn't that sound kind of boring? I mean, some, half of you are falling asleep right now. Imagine like worshiping God, like singing praises to him nonstop. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that sound pretty miserable? Like if we were confined to how we live life now, it'd be hard. I'd get hungry. I'd get tired. Some of you have ADHD. Some of you like, like we have these, imagine that. But when we get there, it's going to be something that we're going to enjoy. We're going to love. He's going to be worthy of. So Jesus responds to this question. In verse 34, he answers them and he says to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, right? So he's basically saying in this time that you live in, in this world, in this life, some get married, you get married. It's for the people in this time before the resurrection. He says, but in in 35, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. He says, those who are counted worthy. What does that mean? Again, what makes us worthy? Again, to to get this answer to this question doesn't just go with our presumptions or what we want to believe, but we have to look at the whole counsel of the Word of God. And as we look at the whole counsel of the Word of God, our worthiness, we're not accounted worthy by our works, our actions, our own goodness, but by what? faith in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is who makes us worthy, right? His righteousness is given to us. So as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's what makes us worthy. And so for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be resurrected from the dead. But he says in that time, he says, we will neither marry nor are given in marriage. He makes it very, very simple. There is no marriage in heaven. Now, I think for anyone who is married and loves their spouse, right? For those that love their spouse, this is hard to take in, right? 
Like to me, I think it's, it's weird. It's weird to think, again, and I'm limited by my understanding and my feelings and my knowledge here on earth, but it's weird to me to think that me and my wife won't be married in heaven, right? Like somehow we're just going to be like friends. I don't, like we're going to be so connected here on earth in every, in every way, in, in intimacy and in everything that we do, and yet when we get to heaven, we're going to fist bump? Like, I don't know, that just, seems, that just seems weird. But I think one thing that I have to submit to is that God knows best and there's a reason behind everything and it's better than I could imagine or design myself, right? Like, I, I just have to submit to that because, listen, and I, I have to do that and you always have to do that with the Word of God even if you don't like it because if you, if you try to change the Word of God because you don't like something, well, then you are becoming like God, the very first sin, right? You're, you're trying to change His design. You're trying to be like Him. And so even though I don't like it or it makes me feel insecure or like weird, it's okay. Like it, it's okay that I have that feeling, but ultimately at the end of the day, I have to submit to, to God. I have to submit to His authority. I have to submit to His Word. So if He says point blank here, I mean, like I don't know how much clearer He could say it. Um, he can't, but He says... There will be no marriage or marrying in heaven. But I do believe as we look, look through Scripture, it's not like Whitney and I are going to see each other and, and not know who each other are. Like, I believe there will be a recognition of our, our past relationships. Like, we will know one another, right? But our primary goal and focus is not going to be marriage to one another in heaven, right? That, that's for the here and now as we glorify God, as we procreate, right? As, as we bring forth life, that God has given us. Now, there's many different false religions out there that do believe that there's going to be marriage in heaven. And one of them is Mormonism. And the Mormons believe, and, and I went on their website, okay, just to confirm this, okay, I went on their website. They believe in a celestial marriage, okay, but there's, there's certain ways that you have to do this. Like, if you don't do it exactly like they say on their website, I don't know who came up with this. Well, probably, yeah, Joseph Smith. Um, so if you go to churchofjesuschrist.org, <laughs> don't go there. But they have a ritual that seals your marriage so you'll be married in heaven. You can have spirit babies and you can also become a god of your own planet. Why are you laughing? It is funny. So this is what their website says verbatim. An eternal marriage must be performed by one who holds the sealing power. I don't know how you get that. I don't know who that is. I don't know how you, maybe you have to Google them. Maybe they went to school for it. I don't know. But make sure you go to someone who has the sealing power. And not only must an eternal marriage be performed by the proper priesthood authority, but it must also be done in one of the holy temples of our Lord. The temple is the only place this holy ordinance can be performed. So you, again, what they're saying is you can't have one without the other. Like you have to have the priest, the, the, the one with the sealing power, and you have to do it in one of the ordained holy temples of the Lord. If, listen, if you are married by any authority other than by the priesthood in the temple, the marriage is for this life only. <laughs> Imagine those who find out, like, that guy, was, he was a fraud. Now we're in here in heaven and we're not married. So after death, the marriage partners have no claim on each other or on their children. An eternal marriage gives us the opportunity to continue as families after this life. Again, that's a hard thing to swallow, and I think it's hard for them to swallow because we love family so much. 
Like, it's a good thing. God has made it, right? But, but this life is different than the next life. The next life is going to be much more glorious than this life. We can't equate it to this life. The best thing in this life that we have ever experienced and ever felt will be nothing compared to what we have in eternity with, in heaven with Christ. Nothing. So in verse 36, he says, Nor can they die anymore. So in heaven there is no death, he simply puts it. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So there is no marriage, there is no giving in marriage, and there is no death in heaven. Right? Only life. Only life. And he says that you will be equal to the angels. And equal to the angels in the sense of that there is no death. They are eternal beings. That is the context of it here. That we can no longer die. It's not even a slight possibility that there is death. And because there is no more death, there is no need for propagation of the species through the institution of marriage. No more mortals will be created because in the life to come, the mortals who have trusted Christ as God, as Lord, as Savior, will go through the resurrection and be clothed, clothed with immortality. If there is no death in the life to come, there is no need for procreation. Right? I mean, there is no need for marriage. And as we see throughout Scripture, as, as God uses the actual physical marriage that we have between man and woman, it's oftentimes tied back to the marriage that we as a church have with Christ. Like, that's the ultimate glorification of it. And imagine how much more it will be when we're in heaven. Right? He's always talking about the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church, you and I who have put our faith in Christ. And, it, and it's, it's not even in its full glory right now, but it will be when we're in heaven. So I don't think we have to so much worry about marriage. Like, none of you are even married right now. Like, so you need to be worrying about now, here on earth. You don't need to be worrying about when we get to heaven. But also, you don't need to worry about it now. God will bring you a spouse if you look at him, look to him. Verse 37, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. And when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but the living for all live to him. So Jesus always quotes scripture, right? It goes back to scripture because scripture has the authority. And he uses the same scripture that they use, the Torah, right? The first five books of Moses. And he quotes when Moses is standing at the burning bush. And here the implication is that God is still the God of, as he says, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even though they physically died a long time ago, he is still their God because they're still alive. Because God did not say this. He, said, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am. I am. And you might be thinking, well, that's, that's a dumb answer. No, that's a legit answer. And they had nothing to, to rebuttal with this because they finally realized it clicked. Oh man, he got us there. Right? And even then, the Sadducees don't say it, but the scribes come in and they say this in verse 39. And they answered, they said, Teacher, you have spoken well. They're over here clapping on the sideline, like, haha, they made them look stupid, right? But again, they're all going to come together of one accord because neither, none of them, whichever group they're in, none of them are walking in truth. None of them are, are walking in the right direction. So what we end up seeing is that they come together. Even though they have differences in theology and doctrine, 
they come together to put Christ to death because he, in some way or another, exposes the darkness and the wickedness and the things that they believe are wrong. And darkness does not like that. Darkness does not like that exposed. And so the best thing to do is, well, let's kill him. Let's not confess and repent, but let's kill him. So they say, teacher, you have spoken well. And after that, they dared not question him anymore. And so we'll end there today. And next week, we'll pick it up in verse 41. Let's go ahead and pray. And we'll have a few minutes for breakout. So Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to submit to your word. Lord, even in areas where where it challenges us, where it steps on our toes, where we may not like it. Lord, even in the areas where we don't fully understand it and we can't comprehend it. Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would give us wisdom, but also humility. Lord, that we would submit to your authority. Lord, an understanding that your ways are higher than ours and our understanding is limited. But Lord, I know that as you have given us your Spirit that we can know the things of you. I do pray that you would guide us in the truth and give us wisdom, give us understanding. Lord, allow us as we grow in this truth and this knowledge that you would grow us in love and compassion and gentleness. And Lord, we thank you that you did rise from the dead. Lord, we thank you that you have proven yourself victorious. You have proven yourself as as God. And you have defeated sin and death. Lord, there is, there is no victory for sin and death anymore. And so we thank you for that, and we, we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we got about maybe, I want to say, 10 minutes. So let's, uh, let's break out into our breakout groups. So if you're a high school guy, go ahead in the back corner with the chairs. Middle school guys up front. Middle school girls by the TV. High school girls by the front door. <laughs>